We're going to take our Bibles and we're going to continue in a series, not for Christmas, but in the series on the life of David as we do that for this week and maybe next and then do some Christmas messages. So I want to invite you to go to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23 as we continue in this series. Joining with us, what we've been talking about is David, a man after God's own heart, and we've been focusing on the idea of what about David's life is challenging. Now David does tie into Christmas since he is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And today what we want to talk about is this idea of David's mighty man. The story is given in 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, a few weeks ago in this series, I gave a, a, a clip up here on the screen that talked about Robin Hood. And I had mentioned at that time that we were at the part of David's life where David had to run into the wilderness and he lived as a refugee in the wilderness for a period of time. And there was a lot of parallels between him, King David, before before he was a king, and Robin Hood, the character that you've seen films about and you've talked about and read about, in that both of them, there was a cruel leader, uh, Prince John or King Saul, in the parallel, that forced them, because of oppression and taxes, that all of a sudden these people had to run and they were considered bandits, though they have not done nothing wrong. David hadn't, neither had Robin Hood, and that they were struggling to steal from the poor, from the rich to give to the poor idea. David did the same thing. He protected the Jews many times, stealing from some of their enemies and helping out those who were being troubled by marauders. But like Robin Hood, David had the same thing. He had a band of merry men. There wasn't a, you know, a little John and you know, all these different characters. Their names are listed in chapter 23, and I'm not going to try to read those names because I'm just going to go big name, big name, big name, big name, because I can't pronounce half of them. Okay, and so we want to talk about those guys in 2 Samuel 23, but I'm not going to jump into the text until halfway through this message. I want to back up and just give you some more information about these guys to describe a little bit from the verses and from the, from the story that we've already looked at and then bring it together when we get to chapter 23. We, their story is given in two passages. The story is given in chapter 23 of Samuel, 2 Samuel, and then chapter 11 in 1 Chronicles, where David writes about these guys. And he tells us, as he talks about that, these are his elite soldier. Remember, David, David at the time that he's writing this is in the latter part of his years, in the last part of his life, and he's looking back. And over the years, he's ruled over thousands and thousands in his armies. But he said, these guys were the elite. These guys were really exceptional. And he lists 37 different names of these fellas that really stand out amongst all the thousands. Most of them were Jewish. They came from a variety of different areas around Judah. We know this from the towns that are given. That most of them come from Judah, but some came from some of the other tribes as well. Three of them weren't even Jewish in background. They had converted. They had proselytized and come from other areas. One of those we've already talked about, Uriah the Hittite that they joined up with David because they thought that David was somebody special. And so what David did with these, his troops in large, but especially these 37, there was three who were at the top, and then there was some on a second tier, and then the rest were here below. And so he had it well organized. And what we know about these guys, what really stands out that I wanted to point out to you is, one, they were ordinary people. They were ordinary people. They were like you. Okay? But they converted, apparently, to going into soldiering. What strikes us is that none of them, in their description given in the 37, none of them are highlighted as being of Jewish nobility. 
None of them are highlighted as being of a priestly caste. None of them are highlighted as being descendants of some of the judges. They appear very ordinary, very common. What we think most of them come from, we know several of them for sure, they came from that group of people that when David was forced to run, at the very beginning of, of his victory over Goliath and then leading the troops into victory, Saul, remember, got very jealous, tried to kill David on two or three occasions. David finally had to run away, had to leave his wife, Michal, that is Saul's daughter. He had to flee out of the bedroom window. Saul was trying to send troops to kill him. And he goes into the wilderness. And then as time goes by, the passages that, that talk about this tell us that everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto David. I'm not talking about people who wouldn't pay their bills. What we're talking about is people who felt overtaxed. Does that have a common theme in your life? They felt like think prices were going too high. They felt like all of a sudden there was all kinds of distress from the government. Did anybody relate? Okay. That feeling could be happening. Well, these fellows were under the gun. They were under the sword if they didn't follow Saul. And so a lot of them in the distress who were in debt, that is, they couldn't pay because of the inflation and the taxes, and they were going to end up in prison for debts that, they, they, that weren't really their fault, that there was just the high prices, the, the rich were, were you know, um, cruelly in, increasing prices, and so they ran to David. And when they ran to David, there was initially 400. Then we read there was 600 of these men who gathered around him, and these fellows, as we read in, their, in the accounts, in chapter 23 from the towns that are given, they come from farm communities. They don't come from commercial areas. They, they could have worked as servants themselves. But now they flee with David. They go into this area of the wilderness where they are considered outlaws and rabble by the troops of King Saul. And so they are just ordinary people who all of a sudden they go and they yoke up with David. But they're not just soldiers. They're fathers. They're They're husbands. They have families that have to go with them. As they form the merry men group around David, there's a whole community that they're trying to take care of. There are kids, there are wives that are there in the wilderness as well. This isn't going to be an easy time for these people. These, these fellows are running for their lives and their families are being threatened. So these ordinary fellows, they prove to be extremely helpful to David. They yoke up with David. They provide protection for David. They work with David where David is trying to defeat the Philistines at times, where David is going to battle against the Moabites, not only in those refugee years, but also when he first comes to the throne. These guys are helping David. They're giving assistance to him on the battlefield to establish his kingdom, to become the ruler of Israel, even in that interim period where David was ruling in Judah, but hadn't been accepted for seven years by the rest of the tribes. These guys were by David, helping him, protecting him, and helping him to come to the point that they knew he was God's anointed. They knew that he was the one that God had said, you're going to be the future king. And so they were helping David, and God used these guys. In fact, if you look at verse 11 in chapter 23, it says that the Lord wrought a great victory. God was helping these guys just as he helped David in the battle against Goliath. God was using these people, these ordinary people. 
these individuals who were proving to be helpful to David. And that's because they were loyal to David. What stands out in chapter 23 is their loyalty. They, they ran to him. They left everything to go to David. They, they yoked up with him. They left their farms. They left their, their towns. And, and they, they left the comfort of a secure property that had debt over it, but some place where they knew there'd be water, some place where they knew that they would have crops. And they went into a nomadic lifestyle where they had to move from place to place, being chased by Saul during part of this time. It wasn't easy for them. It wasn't easy for their families. But they did it because they knew David was going to be the future king. Even though at this time David was an outlaw, everybody knew. I shouldn't say everybody, but the vast majority of people we run into in the text they had an idea that David would be king one day. It wasn't, it wasn't secret news. How do we know that? Well, when Samuel anointed David, when David was just a, a teenager, 15, 16 years of age, he did it before other people. He did it before the townspeople. It wasn't done in secret. We know that when Jonathan, Saul's own son, was talking to David, he makes the comment in 1 Samuel 23, he says, we know that you shall be the king eventually. When, when David was rescuing Abigail from being wiped out by his own troops because her foolish husband Nabal had rejected their assistance and help and giving them some goods because they had been providing protection, when Abigail comes out to meet David and to try to calm him down, she says, we all know that you are going to be king of Israel one day. In fact, when Saul is chasing after David and David spares Saul's life and calls after Saul and says, why are you chasing me? I've done no wrong. Saul even says, we know that one day you will be the king. And so David wasn't the king at this moment. David, when, he, when he was, his story is being written, David is projected to be the king. He has prophesied to be the king. But he's not the king at all. Not at this, that time when they start joining him. And yet they start yoking up because they see how bad it is under Saul. They see how, how the society as a whole is becoming more and more corrupt. So they yoke up with the future king who is a man after God's own heart because they know there's better days ahead. They want to follow him because he's the anointed of God. Does anybody see a parallel here? Does anybody see how, how David's men are like you who sit in the pew here today? That there is a similarity between you and them? That we have, we have a master who is predicted to be the king, but he still hasn't taken the throne. He is the son of David. He is the one who is... He is promising to have a kingdom that is going to be prosperous and going to be beautiful and wonderful. And we see around us in our society, just like they did, we see that society is getting more and more corrupt. We feel the shackles of some of the sin and the oppression. And when, when we come to a reality of saying, we want something better than what this is, and what this offers, we turn to Jesus Christ. And in faith we come to him and we say, Jesus, you are the son of God. Jesus, you will be the king of this earth. And we want to be on your side. And we repent of our sin. We call upon Jesus Christ in faith and we become his followers. And in the same way, 
all of a sudden we yoke up into a band of soldiers for Christ, which we are called to be soldiers of Christ in 2 Timothy. We are called to do battle for Jesus Christ, to spread his kingdom, his cause. And just like those individuals were helpful to David, so you and I can be used by God Almighty to be helpful in advancing the gospel. That if we who come from ordinary backgrounds would just leave all and turn to Jesus Christ, he'll use us, he'll bless us. And friend, if you have never yet done that, this is the time of the year you should. Jesus Christ came as a babe not just to set up Christmas and to establish decorations and trees and manger scenes. Jesus Christ came to this earth for one reason, to die for us in our place, to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for our sin penalty. Was it fair of Christ to do that? No. Was it loving of Christ to do that? Absolutely yes. And Jesus Christ gave his life, suffered for my sin and your sins on the cross. He paid it all as he calls out. It is finished. Paid for all of our sins so that we wouldn't have to have the punishment of damnation hanging over our head any longer. And then he purchased by this payment not only, not only the forgiveness, but the gift of eternal life, that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he offers it to you. But what you have to do is turn from what you are used to, what you are relying upon, the life that you're living now where you're doing your own thing, and turn to Jesus Christ and say, Christ, give me the gift of eternal life and make him your master, calling upon the name of the Lord. And if you do that, Jesus Christ will give you life eternal and he will use you. Until that time that he takes you home, he's going to use you. Just like he had helped out the mighty, the mighty men of David to help David establish a kingdom, he will use you to help spread the news of his future kingdom. Now the question is, do you want to be used? Do you want Christ to use you? Do you want Jesus Christ who many of you have already called upon him, and if you haven't, by the way, when we close this service, we're going to give an invitation, invite you to go and talk to some of our staff over here by these doors, and they will show you from the Bible what you need to do to make sure that you have eternal life, what you need to do to call upon Christ. But those of you who have done that, do you want to be used by Jesus Christ? You're ordinary people who can be helpful to sharing his word. Well, it starts by in your loyalty, leaving all and following Christ. But there's another thing you need to do. You need to live, just like those men did. They lived with David. You need to live close to your master. These fellows, as we remember, even going back into the stories we've already told, they went into the wilderness with him. They were individuals that for 13 plus years, they lived in hiding, moving from place to place to place, not easy with families. But they wanted to stay close to their master, David, the one that they had allowed to be the king of their life, the ruler of their, of their hearts. And they followed him for that period of time. And even when he moved into the Philistine territory for 16 months, they went with him. They went with him when he lived in tents. They went with him when they lived in caves. They went with him when he lived in the town of Ziklag. And then when he moves to Jerusalem and becomes the king and established, they live with him there. They stay with him. They are so loyal, they want to be close to their master. 
Doesn't that remind you of what Jesus called you to do? Where in the text where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he talks about that idea that you need to abide in me, stay close to me, live with me, just eat with me, sleep, drink, you know, have fellowship with me, abide in me as a branch cannot bear fruit in and of itself except it abide. No more can you except you abide in me. He went a little bit further. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. And I will use you as a mighty believer in answering prayers, in developing things in your life, in using you to share the gospel. You need to be loyal by leaving all, by living with your master. But they, in their example, they listen to David. You need to listen to Christ. How do I know that they listen to David? Well, there's a time when they're really afraid. They're living in the wilderness. And the message comes to them that the, the city of Keilah is being attacked by the Philistines. And David's mighty men, the, the group of several hundred, David says, let's go to Keilah. Let's go to battle. I think the Lord would have us go and rescue that Jewish city from the Philistines. And they say to him, we don't want to go. It's been bad enough living around Judah. Now we're going to travel through more of the territory of Saul. And they were afraid to go. So David goes back to the Lord and says, Lord, you want us to go? And then he comes back to his soldiers after God had told him yes. And he says, gentlemen, we need to go. You need to follow me. And they listened to him. They followed him. Even though they had some fear and trepidation, they did what he told them to do. They go to the battle and they win an amazing victory. And they, sa- they salvage that city. They listened to him. Even when they had a better idea. I, I, it would never happen in your home. But once in a while when I was raising our kids, they said, Dad, I have a better idea. Can you imagine that? Okay. <laughs> and so they have a better idea. Do you remember the time when David is running and he's fleeing from Saul? And they're in the cave. And while they're in the cave, there's a few of them with David, and they're hiding at the back of the cave, and here comes Saul into the cave. And Saul is going to do his body business in the cave, and David's soldiers whisper, now, now we can kill him. He's been seeking after our lives. Let's get rid of him. You're supposed to be the future king anyway. Let's get rid of Saul now. And David says, no. They want to. They have a better idea but they listen to David. And then it happens a second time. Months later, maybe years later, Saul's camp is there. Saul and his soldiers are sleeping. David and some of those with him, and one of them uh, comes along and, and is with David, and Saul is sound asleep. There he is. He must have been listening to one of my messages. He is totally sound asleep. And he's knocked out. And David comes up, and his soldier, one of the mighty men, I forget which one it is, But the mighty man says, let's kill him. His spear is here. We can kill him and it's going to be done. David says, no. And they take instead his canteen and they take his his, um, weapons and they run off and then they yell and they say, hey Saul, your, your soldiers couldn't protect you. We were in the camp. Why are you chasing me? But the point is, David's mighty men listened to him when they had a different idea. When they felt differently, they listened to him. In fact, there's a time when they are really hurting. When they, were, when they were with David away from Ziklag, an invading, marauding army of, of thieves came through. And the thieves overcame their, their fortress town of Ziklag. 
where their families were. And the thieves took everybody, wives, kids, all the goods. And when David and his troops come back, they're really discouraged. They just lost their families. That for the last 13, 14 years, they've been protecting and running. And they thought they were safe in this city. While they were away, there was walls, but no. The guys came in, the thieves got in and took them all. And at that moment, his soldiers are so discouraged It says they talk about stoning David. They're upset with David. They're they're looking and saying, David, it's your fault. Do we ever do that? Do we ever blame somebody? When tragedy strikes, we want somebody to be at fault. And so they're blaming David. And David says to him, you got to follow me. Well, you're the one who got us into this mess. And you want us to follow you? They're hurting. And yet they follow David They listen to him, and they get everybody back. So here they are. They're listening to David on occasions. We haven't seen the story yet. It's in what's upcoming. When David is all of a sudden overthrown by his son Absalom, who's starting a civil war, David has to flee Jerusalem. And when David is fleeing Jerusalem with his mighty men, the story tells us, who are his his bodyguard, as they're leaving, they encounter some people who want to yoke up with them. They encounter some other people who don't want to be on their side. In fact, Shimei stands on the precipice above them in the road below and starts throwing rocks at David and at his soldiers. He's an old man who's cursing David and cussing him out. And David's soldier, I think this one is Abishai, he responds and he says, I am going to cut his tongue out of his mouth. And David says, don't. Don't. Okay, we're not seeking revenge for revenge. And even though Abishai really is angered by this, that they would say this about his master, his Lord, he listens to David. He does exactly what David says. Do you listen to your master? If you want to be a mighty believer used by God this Christmas season and giving out the word of God and making impact, you need to listen to Jesus Christ. You need to do what he says when he says, stop worrying. When when he makes comments about be reconciled with that family member or that fellow believer who you have angst against or they have angst against you. When, When Jesus says, love your enemies, those who mock you, those who criticize you, those who make fun of you, bless them, pray for them, do good to those that would do harm to you. Do you listen to Jesus? Do you listen to Jesus when he says, stop judging others without knowing information or especially if if you're criticizing them and you're doing the same thing? Do, Do you listen to Jesus when he says, I want you to ask and ask and ask. I want you to knock and knock and knock. I want you to seek and seek and seek in prayer. Have you listened to him this week in that area of praying time and time again? Do you listen to Jesus when Jesus says, go into the, into the world, go into all of Lebanon and give out the gospel. Take opportunity to use tracts in your Christmas cards. Take opportunity to share your faith when somebody asks, what do you believe? Take opportunity to invite others to come to somewhere where they're going to hear the gospel preached, even like a reenactment or a service. Do you listen to Jesus? Or are you one of those that just kind of comes 
and gives ear service on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week you're doing your own thing. Loyalty to Christ means you leave all, means you live close to him, it means you listen to him, but it also means you lean upon him. You lean upon him. The way David's mighty men, they leaned upon David. What I mean by that is this. There are several times in their life that's been illustrated up to this point that there's, there's difficult decisions that have to be made. There's some tough decisions that they have to do. They, they have to decide certain things. Are they going to listen? Now here's a true story of some of our military who listened to their leader. He's called the boss. His name's up there is Major Norm Lowry. This is a number of years ago when the Thunderbirds from the U.S. Air Forces, they were doing a variety of different shows. And at this time, they were practicing at Indian Springs, Colorado, and there they were, they were practicing. And they were doing all their different routines, getting ready to go on the road, and they were interviewed. And in the interview, one of those who were the followers, the lead pilot was going to be Major Lowry, but the other three that were formed this group, or four at times, they were being interviewed, and they, they asked them then, what do you do? How, what's it like? And one of them commented, and the rest agreed. He said this, the boss, Major Lowry, is our world. Whether I'm right side up, upside down, it makes no difference where the ground is because my eyes are on our leader. And what happened in this case is that they were doing this, this loop where they were fly around and in formation and then come down at a, at a peak, uh, steep angle, and then all of a sudden, at the last second, they'd pull up. And as they were doing the loop and coming down, Lowry's plane, all of a sudden a mechanical problem developed, and he couldn't pull up the stick. All four, four flighters crashed together at 450 miles an hour. Tragic, but there's no doubt they followed their leader. Now let me say this, if you follow Christ with that same type of loyalty, you aren't going to crash. Christ will give you life more abundant. Christ will answer prayers. Christ will use you. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean everything is going to be grand, but Christ will bless you and use you if you lean upon him. Well, David's soldiers, they leant upon him. In Abs- Absalom's revolt, which we'll get to in the next week or two, when Absalom revolts, Here's what they said about David. They make this comment as he's forced to leave the capital. The king's servants said unto the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. You tell us. You lead us. Whatever you want, we will do. In fact, when they get into battle against Absalom's troops, they turn to David and they say, David, don't go to battle this time. You're you're so much more important than us. Don't risk you on the front lines during this rebellion. They say in their battle comment, you are worth 10,000 of us. You are so much more valuable. We need you. We need your direction. We need your guidance. We need you to be our leader. We don't want to risk you at this time when there's civil war and there's such a risk and a threat to to you at this moment. Do you lean upon Christ this way? Do you lean upon Christ that, as a parent, you run to the Word of God to find out how to parent? 
that the Bible is your master guide, your manual for parenting, as opposed to some psychologist or TV character? Do you lean upon Christ? When all of a sudden you're trying to figure out what are my ethics at work for honesty and integrity at school, do you lean upon Christ to say, I will do what he wants me to do? I will rely upon him no matter what the consequences are. When all of a sudden you're facing a trial, a difficulty, do you run to Christ for wisdom, leaning upon him? Is he the first one that you call to? When you need encouragement, when things aren't going great, where do you turn? Who do you run to? When all of a sudden you feel empty inside, do you go on a binge eating spree? Do you go on a binge shopping spree? Some turn to the bottle, some turns to narcotics. But we as believers, we're supposed to be turning to Jesus Christ. Or do you just get all depressed, all angry, all upset, even mad at God? David's mighty men were mighty because they leaned upon him. Instead of giving in to all the the challenges and quitting, they followed him time and time and time again. They were going to remain loyal to their master. Are you? Are you one that is loyal in the point that, most importantly, you live for your master? David's mighty man, now we're in chapter 23. David's mighty man lived for him. That's what stands out. I mean, you look at this text, and it is filled with heroic exploits. It talks about phenomenal things we do, battles that they fought. Battles fought for this one purpose, to promote David and his kingdom. We, we read about characters such as Adino, when we start reading in verse 9. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief amongst all the captains. The same was Adino, the Esnite. He lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Ah, you, you could do that. I could do that with a machine gun and a tank. Okay. But he did it with just a spear. Okay. That he went out to battle. That he went and faced great opposition. It didn't stop him. I'm on a, I want to promote David and his kingdom. And even though I'm outnumbered and it seems I'm overwhelmed, I'm going to get out there and do what I'm supposed to do. The same thing shows up with Abishai, who in verse 18 talks about Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, chief amongst the three. He lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them, and he had a name among the three. Are you an individual that even if you feel outnumbered, overwhelmed by the difficulty, the challenges, the opposition, you are still loyal to your master? In fact, I'll give you another character. Eliezer. Eliezer's story is told here in the next couple of verses. Verse 9, after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel ran away. Everybody ran away but Eliezer. Eliezer stood his ground when nobody else would. He arose, he smote the Philistines until his hand was so weary that his hand claved to the sword. In other words, they had to pry it loose from the handle because he just, he was exhausted. 
and his sword got the his hand got the cramps that he couldn't are you one that would remain loyal and serve your master even when others quit when others say i'm no longer going to give out the word of god i'm no longer going to do a bible study i'm no longer going to go to church and worship. I'm no longer going to, to stand for Christ. I'm going to give in to the, the jokes and the cussing and the cursing. I'm no longer going to, to be one who is parenting according to the Word of God. I get ridiculed too much by my family and my relatives. Are you going to remain loyal when others quit? Will you remain loyal even when you're tired and worn out? Talking about parenting for just a second. Those of you who have parented little kids who are preschool age, have they tired and worn you out? Did you ever get exhausted in trying to correct your children and say, what's the use? I'll just put them in the shed until they're 18, bring them back out, and hope it worked. Do you ever get discouraged by trying to be honest at work and being ignored for it? Do you ever get discouraged in trying to give out the word of God and give out tracts, and people don't accept it. People don't reject it. They mock you for it. But you say, hey, I want to remain loyal to Christ. I want to do it. Have you, have you ever, oh, this, this sounds really terrible. Have you ever gotten weary of just reading your Bible? You hadn't gotten anything out of it, and it feels like a, the ceiling, the walls to heaven are kind of like iron, and you just go, oh. I'll just grab something else and I'll, I'll, I'll listen to a little ditty and that'll be it. I, I'm tired of praying. It just, it's so hard to do. And besides, all my friends, they, they, don't, they don't say, the other, the other teens, they don't talk about praying. Uh-uh. If you're loyal to Christ, you're going to remain faithful in the hard steps, in that which is difficult. Here, I'll give you one. We have Shema who shows up. And his story is in verse 11. It says, After him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herahite. The Philistines were gathered together into a troop, and while there was a piece of ground of lentils, the people fled from the Philistines. All he's talking about is this is part of the covenant land that God had given. It wasn't a fabulous piece of property. It wasn't a piece of property that had a gold mine or a diamond mine on it. It just had some vegetables. Okay? On our level, I'd say it's a, it's, you know, it's a coconut patch. It wasn't worth that much. It was something that maybe for some of you, you'd say it's squash. Maybe some of you'd say it reminds me of you know, a bunch of rhubarb. It wasn't anything phenomenal. But the land was God's land. The land that God had given to the people. And he says the people fled, the people fled from the Philistines. Everybody else left. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. Why? This was God's. This was something that God had promised. It was ours by the, by the grant of God. And I'm not giving it up. Sometimes we get tired of standing upon doctrinal truth. And we get ridiculed for saying, you must be born again. You mean to say you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Yes. But we get we get people upset with us. We get people to, to criticize us. This is what God said, what God gave us. We stand upon it and we defend it. We do that no matter what. Even if it's something that seems small. It, doesn't, it seems insignificant. This is a truth. This is a lesson from the word of God. 
That we're not to be in the, uh, of the world even though we're in the world. We're to be separate. We're to be holy in our speech. And you make such a big deal of it, Pastor, about not cursing, not cussing. It may be a big deal to... Let me rephrase that. It may be a little deal to some people, but I think it's a big deal that we use not the Lord's name in vain. And we say, we're not going to budge on this. We can't fudge on this. We're going to fight our own flesh. We're going to fight the influences around us to say we will not take the Lord's name in vain. We will live pure. We will live holy. We will have family standards where we're going to do what's right and say what's right and be honest but it's only a little lie. It's a lie. It violates the word of God. And so we do what, God, what God's men did in the past. Then, then you have a story. Jump down further in the story. Verse 20, 21. You come up with another guy by the name of Benaiah where it's talks about he's a son of a valiant man of Cabezeel who had done many acts. He slew two guys that were like lions. They were vicious men of Moab. And then he went down, and what he found, he slew a lion in the midst of the pit in the time of snow. What's he mean? There was a cistern that collected water. And there was a lion that had gotten into this cistern. And, there, the, and that lion had to be taken out or gotten out somehow. So what does he do? It says that he, he went and slew an Egyptian as well. The Egyptian, I, I want to stay with that first verse. That what he did is he went down into the pit and he slew the lion. Why? Well, where are these people going to get water? How are they going to get water? The cistern was critical. It was there for a reason. So what does he do? He serves by doing that which is necessary. Somebody's got to get rid of this lion or people are going to be thirsty. I'm the guy. So he jumps down in the pit and kills the lion. And he's, 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 he's such a valiant warrior. He goes on and fights an Egyptian. We don't know when that happened because we don't know of any recorded battles David had with Egyptians, but sometime he did. And so here's a guy who does what is necessary. And he started thinking about this. Do you serve the master? Are you willing to serve him in the same way that these guys did? Your master being Jesus Christ. When there's opposition... When all of a sudden, you know, others around are stopping. When, when all of a sudden, you're getting tired. You're getting worn out. Uh, do, you, do you serve even when you're asked to do little things? Even, even the necessary things that are hard to do. If I were to ask you this, are you willing to be loyal to Christ when he says that the, the very basic Christian love is to go and visit the widows? See those who are lonely by themselves. You say, well, others aren't doing it. It's not that big of a thing. It's kind of hard. But it's what James 1 says, here is pure and undefiled religion. Doing something so simple but necessary. Doing something so simple but necessary as teaching the next generation the word of God. Well, others are no longer teaching the kids in, in the classes. And it's hard to get a lesson prepared. And, and I've got other things to do, and I'm tired. Yeah, and I've done my share. But what about the next generation? To hear the Word of God. To have it explained with your knowledge and your experience. That's loyalty. It's not easy, but it's necessary. 
And then you have, of all the heroic deeds, the one that, stri- one that strikes me the most is what's in verses 12 through 17. In verses 12 through 17, we have David. We don't know exactly when this was. Was it during the wilderness years or in the very early years of his, his um, time when he was king of Judah but not the king over the rest of Israel? I don't know. Nobody knows for certain if it's in the wilderness time or if it's the time when he is just first establishing his throne. But what happens is the Philistines are in the region. And the Philistines, they have captured his hometown of Bethlehem. And while David is there in this cave, figuring, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next, he also gets a craving for something from his childhood years. Have you ever had those types of cravings? You smell a smell and it reminds you of your mom's apple pie. It reminds you of cookies that your mom made and you ate the dough before it even got in the oven. Or you, there was a special thing that grandma made, a special topping. You know, so, oh, it was liver smothered with onions and a bacon sauce over it. And you went, oh, it was heavenly. Your stomachs are growling already, aren't they? No, you say, Pastor, they're doing something, but it's not growling for that. <laughs> so David's there, and David's in this, and he gets, a, he gets a, a yearning for a drink of water. Does water taste different at different spots? Okay, it does. Okay, so David says, I remember Bethlehem had the, oh, the, the water was absolutely wonderful. And he makes a comment to the guys. He just basically says, I wish I could have a drink of water. It's not that far away. It's only 12 miles from where they're at. Okay. It's only 12 miles. You would hop in your car and get it and come back. I mean, some of you drive more than that to go to a smorgasbord you know, called Shady Maple, right? However, what's the difference? They got to walk, okay? They don't have your car, okay? And so it's 12 miles away, and he says, I wish I had. And three of his men, three of his men, they, what they, what they want to do is they want to get it for David. And the story unfolds that these three guys, they break through the enemy lines. They get there. Remember, Bethlehem, Bethlehem is, is garrison. They have to get into the garrison. They bring, get the flask of water. And they've got to come back another 12 miles. And they're doing this just because of a whim, a wish by David, not even an order or a command. They, they risk their lives for a glass of water for David. How silly. Not to David. David doesn't think it's silly. David thinks it's commendable. It is amazing that they would do that for him. Before I say anything more, if Jesus just gave you a wish, would you respond to it? If Jesus just suggested, I I wish he would follow me in believer's baptism, which he does say, are you willing to do that? 
When Jesus tells the disciples, I would like you to pray for others. When all of a sudden you're reading the Word of God about Jesus saying, worship in spirit and in truth, is your heart moved to say, I want to do that for Jesus. I, I, want, I want to tell others about God. I, I want to be the light of the world. I want, to, I want to be the salt of the earth like Jesus mentioned. I, I want to do what Jesus said when time and again he said, love one another. I, I want to be one of those individuals who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what I want to do. Because Jesus said it. Jesus mentioned it. He mentioned about being a servant one to another instead of trying to be in leadership, that the greatest leader is one who serves. And I want to serve. I want to look for opportunities because Jesus wishes it. That's loyalty. That's how you become a mighty believer in God's army. That's what you should do this Christmas is pause and think, what does Jesus wish of me? What could I give him that he wishes I would do? And you want to find out what it is? Read the Gospels. Read what Jesus was instructing the disciples to do and to be. And then do it. And to say, this is what I want. I want to please him so much. Well, they bring back the flask of water. And what does the passage say David did with it? He poured it out. You believe this? There are some commentators that say David was disgusted with their gift. That he just poured it out. How disrespectful. Are you nuts? Where's your head when you read? I want to walk up to those and do what my dad used to say. Give him a clop across the side of the head. Yeah. (laughs) David wasn't displeased. David was so moved by what they had done. David felt... I don't deserve this. And he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. It's the same idea as that woman who says, this this flask of oil, it's been an heirloom in my family. I don't need it. I want to give it to you. And she breaks it and pours it over his feet in worship. And David pours out something that is so valuable to him because it represents the life of men to get this water. He pours out, he says, God, you get the glory for this. Why I have friends like this, I never know. Why would they do that for me? I don't know. Well, what David does do for sure, David appreciates their gift. Can I, can I bring that together? That's what we know about these guys. They were appreciated by David. How do I know that? Because at the end of his life, when he is writing this chapter, He hasn't forgotten what they had done for him. In fact, what's more amazing, he remembers them by name. He remembers what they had done. He remembers the towns they came from. Even though David had thousands and thousands in in his military, even though he was busy with all kinds of king stuff, he remembered his friends who contributed to his life. He remembered their name. And then he records it publicly twice in two books so that they are remembered and they are honored the way they should be. By the way, before I go any further, isn't that a good lesson for us to remember the contributions people have made into our lives? What the, the help that others have given us. 
to commend, to mention. I, I got a text the other day about this gentleman. You probably hardly anybody in this room, but just a handful know who he is. But I got a text that Dr. Lovick had entered into, the, into heaven just recently. Again, that doesn't mean much to you. But in reality, it means a lot to you without even knowing it. Dr. Lovick was um, a gentleman that I knew when I was training at seminary. He was one of our seminary professors. John, did you have him as your professor? Amazing teacher, right? He, what he struck me is he made us think. Doesn't that sound odd? He was a teacher who demanded that we think, that we examine and just stirred us up. It talks here about things that he did and what he did. He's widely known for leading Bible studies in Israel, Middle East countries. And then it talks about how in his early life he wanted to go into military or Christian ministry. That's a good toss-up, right? One or the other. And it went on to talk about how he made the decision to go and teach others for the ministry. May I bore you by reading this? His father asked him which direction would make a greater difference in people's lives. Gordon chose to pursue ministry. After completing his MD of seminary education, he then narrowed his focus on becoming a teacher. His thinking was that while he'd be able to impact people for Christ as a pastor or missionary, his influence for the Lord would be magnified even more if he became a teacher of those preparing to become pastors and missionaries. So he dedicated his life to training thousands of pastors, missionaries, educators. I'm one of them. Did you benefit, therefore, from his ministry? I didn't mean that in a proud sense at all. But aren't we products of those who invest in us? And I want to do what David did, to mention somebody who had a tremendous impact in my life and really moved me. Then Friday I got another text sorry Pastor Don Kittle is in his very last few days his family sent it he's the pastor that led our Burgerhaft family to the Lord he's the man that I got called to ministry under he was my model pastor do people make impacts in our lives that make a difference and so often we forget. Maybe it's a good season that we pause and thank those who've invested in our lives. Well, David had men that he paused and he said, these 37 guys, they invested in my life. And he didn't forget them. And when we serve Jesus Christ, we remember this. He will not forget our service either. We read verse after verse that talks about for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We read about God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you ministered in the nursery. You ministered in junior churches. You ministered in reenactments. You ministered by helping out, folding bulletins, cleaning buildings, you ministered by praying to one another. We read 
If any man's work which he has built remains, he will receive a reward. We read in scriptures where he says, every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. We read, whosoever gives a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, he will not lose his reward. We read, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work. Our master will not forget to reward your services. He will bless if you minister, if you serve. You don't want to miss out on this. True story about Avira cooking, coking, excuse me. Down in Atlantic City, she had this home. And they were developing around her some of the different hotels and casinos that they wanted to build on this whole city block. So they came to her and they offered her to buy her house. And they offered her a million dollars for the house. Uh, that's pretty good because a few years earlier, she and her husband bought it for $20,000. But her family and herself decided they want more money. So they held out for 12 years. Finally, the developers just built right around the house. And she never saw the house become part of the development. She ended up going to a rest home, dying, never sold her property. She missed out on a million bucks. I don't know where you're at, but I were offered a million bucks for my house. I'm not missing out. I'm not that attached to that house. Amen? But there are folks sitting here who will miss out on a greater reward by not serving Christ. You will not become one of the mighty believers in God's army. So what do I take from the story? (laughs) One, appreciate others who have helped. But most importantly, serve your master the way David's men served their master. That means you and I need to live close to him. Listen to what he says. Lean on him. Lift him up. Live for him to the best of our abilities. So I challenge you once again to think this through. This Christmas season, pause and think, what does Jesus wish you would do? Think it through, then do it.